Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Good news is that Leopardstown has the go-ahead. Its important opening flat card um, goes ahead today after an early morning inspection. Less good news came on the front of today's Mail on Sunday. It reads, Undercover Mail on Sunday team exposes plan by up to 100 animal rebellion activists to storm Aintree, then glue themselves together on the course. Vegan mob plots to sabotage the Grand National. Of course, it's 30 years since animal rights protesters contributed to there not being a Grand National in 1993. Joined this morning by Neil Channing and by Paige Fuller, who returns to the show. Um, Paige, as, as someone who is firmly ensconced in the jumping community, this sort of headline on the Daily Mail must fill you with a, a certain degree of horror, doesn't it? It fills me with horror, but equally relief that at least someone managed to do something about it before it became reality. Because we all know the battles that we have with people who don't agree with our sport. And this is scary to think they're willing to go that far, but we kind of already know that. And it's nice that uh, the Daily Mail are actually, in this case, on our side. Like I've done pieces on, I got asked on BBC Radio, and they just gave the floor to the animal rights activists. And it was so frustrating. I just felt like they were just completely directing it their way. So it's actually, for me, a relief that we have some support within the media that the Grand National is still a revered enough national institution that it demands front-page coverage. Neil, I mean, from personal experience, I know, having been part of a, a network broadcaster who's on the Grand National and also being part of the entry committee, that there's no-one sleeping on the job here, and, and threats like this are taken incredibly seriously. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, there's never any good news on the front page of the Mail on Sunday, but uh, I, I, I think if you feel like this is the worst threat to the future of horse racing, uh, you've probably not been following things carefully enough because, you know, we are in a spot where Labour are about four to one on to get the most seats at the next general election and where backbench MPs find themselves constantly bombarded by petitions and letters from their constituents uh, online often. Uh, and they'll tell you that animal rights is the number one issue. It's the thing that their mailbox is more dominated by than any other thing. Uh, and in all the debate, I don't want to bring this back to the whip, but I'm going to. In all the debate about the whip we've had recently, people need to remember that in a couple of years' time, we'll probably have a new government, uh, whether it's a hung parliament or not, uh, and they're, they're, they're going to come in, and there's a good chance that racing is put under pressure uh, on all of these issues, 
And, uh, you know, I think it's great that racing has been on the front foot with the whip. I think that that's been a good thing recently. And I think the national is just another thing that people who want to not racing are going to target. And, it, you know, racing needs to be aware that mm. it's fighting a bit of a war. I don't think the Daily Mail have suddenly become fans of racing. I just think they see it as another, uh, another uh, arrow in their uh, fight of the culture wars, uh, sadly. Yes, because there is some sort of fairly inflammatory stuff. If you dive deep, the the perceived protesters are headlined vegan ringleader, veteran activist, zealots PR man. So yeah, you can see the angle that the that the Mail on Sunday is going for. The jockey club don't want to comment too much more on this for understandable reasons. I guess with any issue of public order or or public security page, it's the ones you don't know about that you want to worry about. Totally. And the fact that it took a Mail on Sunday insider to get in there and sort of flush it out, it's a little bit worrying because you also don't know what other things they've got planned. But at least, as I say, at least it's not going to happen now. That is the front page news. That's not the front page news we were expecting as we launched the, the programme this morning because last time you were here, which wasn't all that long ago, you were on the cusp of making a pretty sensational return to race riding after the stroke that you had at Fontwell back in the autumn. You did make a return to race riding, but it's a short-lived one. Just tell me more. Yeah, so um, thank you for having me on and obviously giving me the opportunity to sort of talk through this with you because um, I want it to be a positive kind of change of career basically because I'm just I don't know what it was I had a fall at Plumpton about probably three weeks ago now and it was my first fall I'd taken since my stroke and I got knocked out for three minutes and I don't know what it was but I just came around and I went I'm ready to try something new so that's what I'm hopefully going to do. <laughs> and did you did you sort of feel that that coming back had been had been a mistake after you came round from the, the fall or, or no regrets? No, absolutely no regrets. And actually it made me realise how much I'm, how, how glad I am that I did come back. I remember, obviously, especially coming back to my scan, I think a lot of me had reservations that medically I wouldn't be able to come back. So I think I'd always sort of talk myself down um, about the chance of me coming back. And then I remember I was having a conversation with Liz Kelly, who obviously, you know, she she had a child and and kind of retirement happened before she kind of had a chance to really retire she said to me she was like why why wouldn't you come back like if you can why wouldn't you and I think that made it really like clear to me that I mean look, I don't know how Liz processed her retirement or whatever but equally it kind of was taken away from her mm. and for me I really wanted to get back and I still felt like I had something to prove. Like I still felt like I could get my career back on track, I could progress and like, I'm a person who I just want to progress, I want to move forwards um, and look, yes, success at that point was literally just getting my career back on track but actually, you know, I really felt like I had more, more to do um, with my riding but when I came back, you know, it's such a struggle, isn't it? Like it's two, two months ago, I think I came on here I had my first ride back and, you know, it just felt like I was pushing water uphill. And again, I was just saying to you before, like, that that meeting last year, I broke my wrist. And, oh, sorry, the, the meeting at Plumpton that I had my fall, I broke my wrist the year beforehand. Mm. And so it's my third 
time on the sidelines in the past year and I was like, I'm not getting anywhere. And for me, it's, it's just a case of, I want to be successful and progressive. And unfortunately, however much I have like built a career for myself that I'm really proud of, like right now, actually, I think I'm ready to move on and be progressive at something else. Mm. Um, so yeah. How do you reflect on, on your career as a whole? Oh, I had the most amazing time. Honestly, I couldn't recommend it anymore. Like, obviously, you know, it's the most ridiculous roller coaster riding. Like, it, yeah, I look, I did my A levels 10 years ago, and I look at the last 10 years, and I was flicking through all my memories on my phone, and I was like, wow. I've been to, I've ridden in Belgium, France, Germany, Abu Dhabi. Like, you just look at it, and that was just in my amateur days. And then I turned professional, and I was riding at the festival and on those massive days and riding big winners and riding with the most amazing people. And I just wouldn't have switched it for the world. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for it. I can't believe that it was even a reality. Like I never thought I'd be a jockey. I, uh, my vision at school was earning enough money to be able to buy myself a nice horse to race, to ride at the festival to me looked like going and making those money so I could spend 40 grand on a horse to ride at the festival. And I got to do that just through my own like rider. I rode a grade two winner like just through my riding, which is just amazing. Like I can't believe it. <laughs> so it seems that you're you're more overcome by by the fact that you've been able to do this rather than by the idea that it it's now coming to an end, even though it's not the end that you wanted. Yeah, I'm actually I'm feeling a bit more emotional than I thought I would do because <laughs> I've been so like since since Pumpton, I literally have been like I'm really like I'm so happy and excited about my next opportunities because, yeah, totally the last 10 years have been gifted to me. Um, and that I've just done stuff that I just never, ever thought I'd be able to do. And so now, as I say, I'm just so excited that hopefully as well, it's given me the sort of grounding and, and made me into a much better, stronger, resilient person that can go on and do something else. Um, resilience has, has never been something I feel that you've you've lacked. Oh God, <laughs> I am I am actually a really teary person behind the like behind the scenes. Can you not be teary <laughs> and resilient at the same time? I, I've had a really amazing support group of people who have helped me develop that resilience. I think resilience is like the key thing in jockeys. Like it's just. Yeah, it's it's something you really have to have, and I I didn't I don't think I had it to start with, but actually through you know the support from Jamie and my partner, like it has developed, and it's just yeah, it's it, it's certainly something that I'm quite proud of because I wasn't very resilient to start with. <laughs> you, I mean, during your career, you know, you've done many great things in the saddle. You've done quite a lot of important work out of the saddle as well, particularly in terms of improving facilities for, for female riders. How far do you think we've come and how much further do you think we need to go? Well, I'm really, I'm really grateful that you pick up on that um, because obviously... Well, I know how much work you do behind the scenes without... <laughs> yeah, but like, it's really nice... People but talking what, about it. Yeah, but it's really, I'm really, like, I'm really grateful that that is recognised because for me, it was just a part of, like, I was fed up of sitting in a gazebo at one of the races yeah. I was just fed off of it for myself like equally I wanted to make sure that obviously for the future generations it would be better but like when I walked into one race course and there was a male physio operating out of our 
physio room, I was like, how is this still happening? Like this is when I turned professional. Like there were still like physios operating, treating male riders in our, in your changing, in our space. changing space. Yeah. And it just baffled me that nothing, like everyone was just getting on in typical jockey fashion, just getting on with it. Like, you know, that's how it's always been. Like we just got used to it. Um, and obviously, ideally change would have happened quicker than it necessarily did. But equally, I do hope that the work I've done can help future generations. Because as I say, I just, I really hope that other young female jockeys aren't in the position I was in growing up, thinking, God, the only way I can afford to ride at the festival is by buying a horse, and actually go, yeah, I can make a solid sound career. I don't have to be, you know, even though Bryony's amazing for the sport, you don't have to be a Bryony to, to have the most amazing lifestyle through this. Like, I, I make a living. I am having an amazing time. I still am having an amazing time. And I just want to make sure that it, they are able to enjoy it, have suitable facilities and just a suitable playing field to be in. Rachel Blackmore's probably coming into the autumn of her career. Um, when you look in Ireland behind her and when you look in Britain behind, um, well, there was Lizzie Kelly and yourself and, and behind Bryony, and you don't see enough names on that table. What does it, what does it make you think? Well, I think, I think it still takes time. Like, realistically, the Rachel and the Bryony effect won't be seen for another 10 years. A great moment yesterday for trainer David Menuisier with the success of Migration in the Lincoln. Top weight and a neat bookend for Benoit de la Sayette, the apprentice rider, for the last two years, which have seen their ups and downs. He was very good on this horse. The horse himself is very good. And I think his trainer, who is on a high or was on a high yesterday, joins me now, hopefully still on a high. David, good morning. Morning, morning, everybody. Ah, oh, the smile, the smile, the smile, yeah, the, the smile says it all. You are, you are still on a high. Why did yesterday mean so much to you? Because, look, uh, the horse is part of the furniture. He's been with me since, uh, since he's a yearling. And uh, we've been through a lot of highs and a lot of lows with him. So uh, it's, it's a special win, you know, when, when you have to nurture them uh, like this for years and years. Um, it takes a lot of time and patience, and uh, I'm very grateful to uh, to the owners to have had the patience to uh, to uh, keep on believing in the horse and, and myself. In fact, <laughs> I I was scrolling back through his career, uh, his life and career, David, and I I noted that he made a, a reasonable amount of money as a foal and as a and as a yearling for a horse of a relatively humble humble origins. He must have been a a beautiful looking young horse. Uh, just talk to me about when, when you first clapped eyes on him. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, um, he, he was he was absolutely magnificent as a yearling. And that's why he made he made so much money. I wasn't part of the of the buying squad. Um, I mean, Gary, Gary Brown uh, is very good at, uh, at picking them uh, as uh, as yearlings. And, and uh, I wasn't actually with her when when she bought him. Um, she was with Richard Frisby, and uh, they, they, they bought a, a fair few very good horses like Make Time and Vintage. And uh, but he, he was he was an exceptional individual as a foal. I mean, 
the, the breeder sent me a photo of him as a foal and he looked uh, he looked to picture them and uh, it's not very the, probably not the most fashionable pedigree but you know his dam is by red clubs he's a very good broodmare sire and um Alabayev was a very sharp two-year-old and he seems to uh he seems to um, to produce um, horses that need time. I've had two of them, and, and they were both quite good. This is him as a foal. Beautiful foal. Yes. Migration by Al Habayab out of a red club's mare. And yeah. I think we've got a shot of migration yesterday, just after his famous victory. There he is, having a pick of grass in yeah. the unsaddling area at at Doncaster. Did you go into yesterday's race with great confidence, David? I actually did, in fairness. Um, look, I, he was extremely unlucky in the Balmoral handicap at Ascot. And uh, he was running off 109 that day. Um, obviously, yesterday he was off 107 with a three pounds claim. And, um, and the horse absolutely loves the heavy ground. Uh, in an ideal world, his best trip is a bit further than a mile, but you know, for a first run of the season, a mile is perfectly fine. Uh, we knew he wasn't going to um, uh, to tire that much because you know we took him for a race course gallop at Kempton last week, and uh, yeah, I, I was pretty confident actually. A strong, strong Gallic flavour to yesterday's success with with your win and and the horse being ridden by Benoit de la Sayette. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you went for him uh, and what you thought he would he would bring to the horse. Look, I mean, uh, the horse is usually ridden by William Brick and Ryan Moore. So they, they had first call on the horse. Uh, but I did I did pencil in Benoit uh, just in case Ryan or, or William couldn't ride. So he had been penciled in about two weeks before the confirmations. And when we confirmed for the race, five days before the race, uh, I rang Benoit's agent and, and actually um, his boss, uh, John Gosden, decided to, to, uh, to use him to ride Saga in the race. So I did lose him. And so we had to book uh, somebody else. And Neil Callan actually really played ball and. Uh, um, I'm, I'm very grateful to him to have understood uh, that um, when Benoit came back available on Thursday after his boss decided not to run Saga, uh, we, we switched jockeys around, which is one thing I absolutely hate doing. But um, I, I thought Benoit would get on really well. And also, uh, having the three-pounds claim in a, in a race like this can make the difference between losing and winning. And whether he did or not yesterday, uh, we'll never know. But um, I was I was happy to have Benoit. I would have been happy as well to have Neil on board. But uh, when you can have a claim, it's a definite plus. Uh, perhaps a result that you wouldn't have thought could be eclipsed by any story yesterday, but somehow it was, and that was by the the winner of the Brocklesby. Again, an awful lot of intertwining storylines here. A brilliant ride from Billy Lochnan, who has earned every superlative thrown at him. This is a horse named after the late rugby legend Doddy Weir, who lived for six years with motor neurone disease and did so much to raise awareness of this awful condition um, through his extraordinary stoicism throughout it. Um, in a moment, we're going to be joined by his longtime teammate and friend, Kenny Logan. But first of all, uh, Carl Pearson, who's the racing, racing director for Cross Channel Racing, 
joins me on the line. What a win for, for Doddy's impact and a, a notable strike, Carl, for, for charity as well, for, for Doddy's own foundation, My, uh, my Name's Doddy. Good morning. Good morning, Nick. Um, great pleasure to be on with you. Thanks for, um, thanks for having us on. Um, it's a, the morning after the night before. It was a long, it was a long afternoon and a long evening um, yesterday. Amazing start to our partnership with with my Doddy um, Foundation and the horse to run in a prestigious race like the Brocklesby is um, and, and and win it is just um, what dreams are made of, really, Nick. And there is just something, isn't it, about that first two-year-old race in the UK of the year and um, striking straight away again with a, a partnership-owned horse, a horse with a, with a charitable angle, a horse ridden by a young riding sensation. The, the, the sort of shaft of light through a gloomy day yesterday must have been really very striking. Just sort of explain, explain the feeling for you and for, for Mike Hocking and, and the rest of the team behind the horse. Cross-channel racing, Nick, was started just over two years ago and sports sportsmen and sportswomen were the, were the conduit. We, we started off, Mike had a vision to start off a sports and networking, business networking racing club and cross-channel racing's getting towards 40 winners in the last two and a half years. And, and Doddy yesterday was our fifth two-year-old winner. And to take up 30 of our, of our cross-channel members to Doncaster for such a prestigious race with a relatively cheaply bought horse, which is our, our, our strategy, and to take on the likes of the favourite, um, you know, £250,000 horse is just... Like I said, it's what dreams are made of, and it's it's the it's the, the story that links in beautifully with with Doddy is that it, it's the the smaller syndicate, the smaller members club that can go to the big stage, and you know as as you as you mentioned a second ago, it is a big stage. The Brocklesby. I've I've been in racing and and for 15 plus years with Mike and Matt, who own Cross Channel, and we've always dreamed of having a runner in the Brocklesby, and we. We started off last year with Jiffy Boy, came third, was our first ever runner um, in the Brocklesby, and obviously we, we we got the bug for it last year, and we and we came back this year with with Doddy's impact. So it was, it's a it's a wonderful story. The members were up there in their in their droves. We had some business club members from from the Doddy Foundation join us. It was just an incredible day. You know, the by far the best day we've had in racing. And I would imagine it was a pretty special day for, for Kenny Logan, who, who joins us now as well. Kenny, a, a long-time teammate, uh, more importantly, a huge friend uh, of Doddy Weir. Uh, Kenny, the fact that this horse's name was Doddy's Impact, he had, had to be strong. Yeah, he had to be. Thanks for having me on, too. Um, you know, he had, I mean, I think it sums him up, actually. Um, he, he made an impact in his rugby career, but his, his big impact was um, indeed what he did through the UK and all over the world, and yesterday was a great tribute to Doddy and for the horse win the Brockleby. It was fantastic, and um, the boys at um, um, Cross Channel Racing have done a great job, and it's been a great partnership. And it's to have the horse running first up, and I mean, I listened to it. I can get there. I listened to it. I didn't hear, him, I didn't hear his name much, and suddenly, just in the last 20 seconds, he just came flying through. I couldn't believe it. It was such a... And my first phone call was from Doddy's wife. She was jumping. She couldn't believe it. Doddy's passion was horses. That was his first passion. He'd, he'd have been a horse rider if he, if he wasn't so tall. Uh, but that's his first passion. He's always had horses and he loves his horses. 
Uh, and a man who, who through his life with motor neuron disease, those last six years of his life, just showed, showed the world what you'd known for so long. A, a, a kind of a really rare strength and, and humility. R- remarkable guy. Yeah, I mean, I think we really saw Doddy when, when he actually... I mean, I've always known Doddy as, as, as a great individual and a good laugh, but he, he brought something out after his M&D. He'd sort of become this different character and, and led, led, really led from the front about how we can try and sort this uh, disease out. And, and as he said, you know, the problem with the disease is it's just underfunded. So things like Doddy's impact, yes, it gives us great exposure, but also uh, it puts money in the pot for, to find, try and find this cure for... You know, Doddy knew he wasn't doing it for himself, he was doing it for everybody else. And that was his, his real legacy. He said, I, I'm not going to be saved by anything that's going to happen, but I can make an impact in the future. And, and that's what we're continuing to do. And, you know, a lot of people worried about the foundation when Doddy passed, but actually it's got stronger. And the passion with the supporters and everyone to get involved in the foundation to try and find this cure for this terrible disease. As I say, it's underfunded. Carl, I think, is is still with us. Um, Carl, I know you will be spurred on by what Kenny's been saying as well. You say you've got a group of horses to, to go to war with now. Um, we're hoping Dottie's impact can, can keep contributing during the course of the season. Who else are you hopeful for? We've got, um, we've got ten two-year-olds, Nick. We, um, two years ago, we bought, we, we bought five. We, we, we decided to, to dip our toe into the yearling market and we bought five horses, all relatively cheap. Um, and last year we had 12 and we had some great success with the likes of um, Jiffy Boy and Direct Security and this year we bought 10 and um, Robin's done, look Robin's got all our horses Nick uh, he's done a great job over the last couple of years and the two year old strike rate for cross channel rating is extraordinary for a small owner it's, it's bordering on 40% um, winners to runners two year olds we've had in our, in our two years we've got We've got 10 this year to go to war with. Um, we couldn't have asked for a better start yesterday. It was We, 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 we weren't um, conceited enough to go up there and, and, and think we were going to win, but Robin was bullish. He gave, us a lot of, he gave us a lot of hope, gave us a lot of confidence. The members chipped away at the, at the prices. They, they won a few quid. They had a great day out. And we've got two or three um, really, really nice horses to come. Um, some later types for later in the year, but we've got some. Again, we've we've been lucky with Robin picking the horses out for us over the last two or three years. We've had we've we've had so much luck with reasonably priced horses. Doddy's um, impact was six thousand pounds from Goffs, um, and you know, as you well know, we're taking on um, huge stables, huge owners, and the the amount of support we had yesterday at Doncaster Racecourse with the crowd and, and, and obviously when we walked back in with Billy, um, just people coming up to us and saying that they they supported him and had a, had a few quid on him, just, just race goers. It was just absolutely unbelievable. It was really, it was choking to walk back in, mm-hmm. really, for, for, a, for a small owner and a small stable like Robbins. It was just, it was overwhelming, really. Carl, thanks so much. Kenny, thank you. Looking forward to seeing you both very soon. Yeah. Thanks so we'll much for joining us. Thank Billy for what a great race because, you know, we were talking about the horse. You need a good jockey too, so well done to Billy. Very pleased that Harry Whittington joins me on the show.
Harry, who has just taken a, a career turn. Um, because I'm not, I'm not allowing the R word on this show, Harry, unless you genuinely are um, putting your feet up with pipe and slippers, which you're most definitely not, and I don't suppose you ever have done. Certainly not. I don't think I'll ever do that, to be honest. Um, I've worked too much. So um, what, what's happening? Uh, well, look, um, at the end of the day, um, we've explored a lot of options um, over the last couple of years, and um, um, we're very fortunate to own our own place. Um, the yard and um, obviously we've had a great 10 years training horses and um, you know things have got difficult in the last couple of years um, no doubt um, and we made a decision last summer that we wanted to set up the pre-training business again and we could do that alongside the training business and mm -hmm. that was more difficult 15 years ago because I when I went training I wanted to carry on pre-training and it was it was trickier because the rules were a lot more strict um, so you, the two yards had to be further apart and all the rest of it so anyway um, the fact that they'd relaxed the rules on it um, helped that we made a decision to try and do both alongside each other um, which we've done for a year and ultimately I think you know we're, we're making this transition because um, there's opportunities out there there's demand for pre-training mm -hmm. We enjoy it. It's great fun. We love it. I've broken in 600 horses, and I've always my passion has always been working with young horses. And um, you know, it's a good model. And I just we just felt that one needed the focus. Um, and given that we want to stay where we are, we've got such great facilities for pre-training, and we've got fantastic riders. We've always been very lucky with the staff that we've had, and we've got really good horsemen working for us. Um, so you, that can we run, felt you can run a good sustainable business? Yes, and therefore it is a good decision for us as a family going forwards. That um, has to be the most important thing. Absolutely. Why wasn't training with a licence a good sustainable business, ultimately? Uh, well, I think if we'd been able to you know, sustain the numbers from you know, three years ago and the quality, um, then perhaps we'd have We'd, no doubt we'd probably carried on as we were you know with a full yard of quality horses that we were running at big meetings on Saturdays where we were accumulating enough prize money to make it viable at that time although it was still tight I have to say the best year we had was when we were trading horses but I kind of had to leave that behind when we started getting too many big Saturday winners because you know it's it's hard to do both um, because obviously you're having those big winners, people are you're less likely to buy off you if you're you know, not selling them to keep them in the yard. Um, so yeah, like obviously, you know, off the back of that good Cheltenham we had three years ago, um, you know, it was our time to hopefully kick on and obviously the pandemic came in and, and then, uh, you know, over the next two or three years, a lot was happening in racing, you know, in this country. You know we're losing the quality to Ireland, um, and um, you know it just it just became harder. I just felt a lot of it was out of our control, and um, you know obviously last summer we were constantly assessing our situation, our business as one does, and it felt right. Obviously we needed to do something, and 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 it's an easy um, decision to make to start pre-training alongside, especially with the rules, the way they've been relaxed, that we could do it and. Um, do it together and see how it how it panned out. 
but ultimately after a year of doing it I think you know we feel that the focus needs to be the better model where the opportunities and the demand is greater. You, you talked about that 2019 festival where you took three horses there and they finished first, second and third. Um, simply the best, San yeah. Calvados and, and, and Rouge Vif, all owned by your biggest patron then, and Andrew Brooks. Um, what, what went wrong there um, between, between you and him? Uh, I think that the horses had got to a peak and that first, that next season, you know, it was it was going to be difficult because they would hit hit a ceiling of where they were. You know, I think we were in a pandemic. Um, you know, owners couldn't go racing. You know, I think for Andrew, I like I I managed to go for dinner with him in the summer, and it was great. And we talked about the good days and all the rest of it. That you know. It was. It was. It wasn't. I, I got the feeling it wasn't as enjoyable for him. And you know, we got to the end of that season. I felt that you know that I needed to say to him that you know that that um, that I I needed things to be like it was the way it was before that season. That you know we could run the horses where we wanted and all the rest of it. And so there was that was a little bit of a part of it. And then. The, the classic, the classic yeah, trainer absolutely. and attention. Really. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, um, you know, I said to him, you know, I'm, I will always be grateful for everything you've done for me. And we put each other, we put each other on the map. And he said that as well. And, and the horses were moved. And, um, you know, like I say, we went for dinner in the summer. And it was really nice. And I spoke to him on the phone a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I'll always be grateful to him to what he did for us because, you know, I mean, to have those horses at that time, just incredible. And um, you know, I think as well, you, with the with the way National Hunt Racing is, the, you know, the quality is going to Ireland, and it's been going on the last couple of years. And obviously, we've had a couple of other big owners have come to the yard, and we've won with the horses. But you know, they're moving towards more towards Ireland. For us, you know, just the transitioning back to pre-training has just always been mm. something that's always been yeah. there, and it's always been something I've really enjoyed so it's not like I'm you know going to something I don't enjoy because I just love it and um you know and um it was never a, a lifetime ambition to train in fact when I left Malcolm Bastards I had no interest and Nicky Henderson set me off as a satellite yard and I, just, I got a little bit of the bug for it out of doing that and um and at the time I didn't have you know I wasn't married didn't have a young family and um you know I don't think it was a decision I made at the time. I don't think it was a sensible one, <laughs> for the, but I just wanted to give it a go. So I felt if I didn't give it a go, I'd never give it a go. So, um, you know, and hey ho, the next 10 years were amazing. So, uh, To what extent are you someone who actually doesn't enjoy having their name in lights very much? Um, I think it was ever about that for me. Um, you know, I, at the end of the day, for me, it was always about finding talent and nurturing them mm. and being a big part of that, hands-on, riding them out, feeling them every day, going to bed, thinking about them and getting the best out of them and bringing them back year after year. That was, you know, that, that was where I got my kick and enjoyment out of it. And, you know, the limelight has never really been... It's, it's, not, it's not been about that. It's never been about that. So is your approach... Um, that 
sort of hands-on approach. Is that actually compatible with being a, a successful modern-day super trader? Um, I think you've got to understand your horses, and it's very important. Um, I just think, uh, so I, I don't, th you know, to have good horsemen around you is important. Obviously, for somebody who's not a salarized trainer, you know, you've mm -hmm. got the business to run and you've got to be shrewd and you've got to get the model right because it is a tr tricky model and you've got to make sure that, you know, that you can make a living out of it. Um, so, you know, you've got to be good at all those things. Um, so the horsemanship side can get taken care of, but you've got to understand your horses, of course. Um, you know, but for me and, and us and where we were when we were, when we were well old machine with 40 horses and we were very lucky to have, a, a, you know, a, a great amount of quality within that 40, you know, our system was, you know, that we were all very hands on and we were all very good horsemen and, and, and you know, so, um, you know, it worked for us um, very much so. But I think, you know, obviously, I know what you're saying at the end of the day, in order to train horses you don't need to be hands-on um, you need to be able to take care of all the things and there's lots of things that you know you need to be good at um, like placing horses and all the rest of it but as long as you've got you know a good team of people then you can, you're gonna you're gonna be successful but uh, you know you need to be good organizer good delegated good absolutely business all manager. so many facets entertainer entertainer absolutely yeah I suppose each trainer is different isn't it? I mean I, I've always said you know each individual trainer has his own setup what he's good at and what he's not so good at and you can get those other bits taken care of as long as he's a good delegator and you know some trainers obviously are all about entertaining and have very good staff and some trainers are more hands-on and you know the entertainment can be looked after by other people in, in some in some scenarios. Now even though I, I sort of knew that you might be edging out of one uh, discipline and, and concentrating more wholesale on the pre-training I was still rather hoping that the that the Rouge Vive story would come would come full circle at the <laughs> at the Cheltenham Festival. That that had been the great plan, hadn't it? it? Yeah, it, it had been. And funnily enough, because you went and bought him back. Even if he'd gone in, he 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 wouldn't have run his race because he would have hated the ground. Because um, we ran him at Kempton on the Saturday, and it was um, it was soft. And uh, you know, Daryl just said. You know, he got off and he, said, he pulled him up. He said, "Look, he just, you just got to run him on good, a sound surface." And I think, you know, when they get to that age, they know, when it, you know, they know when it's right and what's not right. And so, you know, the fact it went heavy. But I was sort of hoping from February onwards that, you know, what they were saying with the long-range forecast that it was going to be watered good ground. I was rubbing my hands together, thinking, you know, this is this is going to be the best opportunity for him sneaking at the bottom of the weights. And um, seven out of the last eleven years, he would have gone in off one three seven, but. It, he missed out by four, but it, ultimately, um, he wouldn't have run. He wouldn't have run his race on that ground. No chance. So, um, you know, it, it's it's history now. So, and, where do they all go? What happens? What the horses? Yeah. Um, well, I told. Obviously, spoke to all the owners um, earlier in the week, and um, and last week, and the week before, and this week, I've got through them all, and, and um, been, you know, very emotional because that's the hard. That's been a hard, difficult part of it for Alice and I because we're down to our core and um, core owners that have become great friends over a long period of time, and um, you know they've all been very understanding. And um, so, you know, at the end of the day, I've said to them they don't need to go anywhere yet. They can be turned out with us. They can be they can do their road work. They can be pre-trained until August. So there's no rush to make a decision. And 
you know, they've all said that they'd like me to be involved in the process. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's their decision where they go. Um, but no decisions have been made yet. And, um, you know, we're working together to, to find suitable places for them to go. And you won't let Rouge be too far out of your grasp, <laughs> will you? Um, well, did you love him more than any I'm, other horse? I'm hoping like, he's going to be as close as he possibly can yeah, be. <laughs> it's not like saying who's your favourite child, but he is your favourite horse. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, I adore him, you know, because he was... Uh, he was crazy when he arrived, and um, he could uh, pretty unrideable. And um, Cosy, who's still with me now and been with me a long time, um, Richard Cosgrave, who's a fantastic rider and horseman, as good as you'll get. Um, you know, we had to get him on, this, on him in the stable for about the first month and riding around the stable for about 10 minutes before he came out of the box. And he always wanted to do everything a million miles an hour. And I rode him for a long time as well, actually. Because um, he went back to Ireland to help his father for a, for a year, and then came back again, and I rode him and stayed on him, and then since he'd been back from Paul's, Cosy's ridden him, so we sort of shared it over the years. But um, he's just—he was all such a project, and I was just so proud of what we achieved with him because he wasn't easy. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thady Gosden will be joining me in the studio very shortly. I think just about the one place that he hasn't managed to get his name on a Group 1 victory at the moment is, is Hong Kong, who is uh, rapidly evolving, not just as we know, as, a, as a, a great racing jurisdiction in its own right, but as the, as the driving force behind so much of the, the globalisation of the sport, particularly from a, from a betting standpoint. I'm delighted to be joined this morning on the show by Sam Natty, uh, who's a board member of the uh, Hong Kong Jockey Club. Uh, Sam, good morning. Well, Nick, great to be with you. And, and great to have you with us today as well. It, it's fair to say that we've always looked on Hong Kong with great, with great envy as a, as a, a self-sustaining, financially viable source of, of great competitive racing that's, that's extremely well funded. But is it fair to say, Sam, over the last few years that, it, that its aspirations stretch way beyond its own boundaries? Yeah, and I think uh, the club recognises, particularly under Winfried's leadership, uh, that there is an important role to play in the context and framework of what you just described, and that is to lead the way to ensure that there is a global sustainable industry, not just a great industry in Hong Kong. While I think it's fair to say and it's recognised that we contribute significantly to that sustainability, we also benefit from it, you know, without having a breeding industry here in Hong Kong, we rely on uh, most of our bloodstock to come from uh, the Southern Hemisphere, but increasingly from Europe as well, as, as we look to increase the number of staying races and staying type horses that are here in Hong Kong. So I really think Winfred um, has, has taken a, a significant leadership role in that. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and I think he sees the need for us to all work together to make sure that we, 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 we have a, a sport and an industry um, that, that can drive uh, a fan involvement and engagement. Yeah, this is Winfred uh, Engelbrecht Breskus, who is the uh, the boss of Hong Kong Racing, essentially, but also the the chair of the International Federation of of Horse Racing Authorities. You mention the importance of of sourcing horses to race in Hong Kong from 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 across the globe. How how robust is the is the pool of equine and and human talent, for that matter, in in Hong Kong at the moment, in your opinion, relative to how it's been in in previous generations? It's a great question, um, and it has many layers, actually. I think it's fair to say that right now on the equine front, uh, we have, I would say, at least four 
bona fide, you know, international group one horses that would be competitive in any race anywhere. And that's uh, a, a pretty decent standard. And then there's a second tier, you know, that aren't too far behind uh, that group of four horses. So I think we've seen some really exciting racing this season as a result of those four horses and also a few others coming through. COVID was interesting. Um, I think some might say in Hong Kong that the uh, the quality of horses coming into Hong Kong over the past season or two as a result of COVID restrictions uh, and not not allowing uh, trainers and, and, and perhaps others, owners, uh, to, to source horses in the way that they might and be able to see them in the flesh, et cetera. Um, and we're also perhaps slightly down on numbers. But having said all of that, in Australia, where we source more than 50% of our horses, uh, the industry is going through quite a, a strong resurgence. Uh, our prize money is up, and, and obviously that makes the, the, the horses that are available for sale, uh, their cost goes up as well. Um, so, so we are looking uh, to Europe, as I mentioned earlier, the UK also for, for an opportunity to source horses. And, and, and as I talked about earlier, it's all about the ecosystem, you know, that, 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 uh, that hopefully improves, improves breeding numbers and, and can channel right throughout the industry. Um, as for jockeys uh, and trainers, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very competitive uh, place, uh, Hong Kong racing. Uh, Joe Marrera left early in the season, but we've had a number of, you know, uh, top-class international jockeys uh, like Sylvester D'Souza and Hugh Bowman come in to fill some of that void and, and, and trainers uh, also are, 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 you know, uh, in and out um, depending on certain criteria. So, so the standard's pretty hard. The benchmark's high. Yeah, people are important to, to Hong Kong punters. We know that. Um, I'm intrigued as to, as to why um, racing globally appeals to those people who get so much out of betting in Hong Kong. If you're betting in Hong Kong and you've got f fantastic liquidity, you can get as much as you want on whenever you want on. You can bet exotically to your heart's content and you've got full fields and incredibly competitive racing. What is it about racing around the world that will also appeal and has really driven this appetite for a global pool? I, I, I think that there are many layers to the whirlpool, which is which is what you're alluding to. And, you know, the objectives do vary. On one hand, it definitely is about betting. It is about promoting Parry Mutual um, as, a, as, a, a, as a genuine um, uh, mechanism for wagering and, and, and distribution. I heard your earlier guests talking about prize money. You know, Hong Kong Jockey Club last year uh, paid £12 million back to the UK industry. Uh, from the World Pool meetings that we took, if you if you put that up against uh, you know the total distribution uh, from various forms of wagering in the UK uh, over 365 days of the year and, and every single race meeting, it's an incredibly significant amount of money. So there is that, uh, but there also is that 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 element of working together, sustainability, uh, promoting the best events, which as you can see. You know, on uh, on your graphic on screen, um, it really is about those 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 best uh, cards of racing uh, ac across uh, the, you know Great Britain and the UK. And when you're looking at, at selecting these fixtures for for Whirlpool, you know, quality obviously is is key, but but presumably competitiveness has got to be another another driver as well. When when people are betting into a into a global pool, they, they want to be betting on races that are are well filled. I'm guessing. Yeah, there's no doubt, and I think also, um, and I'll come back to that point. But one of the things that we do look for is genuine 
partnerships. Um, it's really important for us from a Whirlpool perspective. It's a lot more about strategic outcomes. Yes, the revenue that flows back to the racing industry is really important to those jurisdictions. But for us here in Hong Kong, uh, it's a little bit more about building strate strategic outcomes with, with our partners. And, and so we look for those partners who are genuine in trying to build the Whirlpool uh, and the objectives that, that we have around them. In terms of the turnover aspect and the full field sizes, uh, in Hong Kong, the second most popular bet type, I'm sure this will surprise some of your viewers, but the second most popular bet type is, uh, is what we call the Quinella Place. You guys refer to it as the swinger. Um, it's the first two of any three across the line. It's, it's usually about 22 or 23% of, of our total turnover on any given race. Um, if we have less than seven runners, we actually don't even have that bet type. So uh, you can see a significant dent in turnover by having runners less than seven. Some of the dust filter across for sure to other bet types, but it is a significant driver of turnover. And we had a situation to give you a, a really you know, illustrative example, and, and, and it, it may have been York, it may have been Goodwood, but one of the last races on the card through, through their respective carnivals, there was a a full field, 16 or 17 runners. It was a three-year-old Phillies maiden, sort of three to one the field. Um, and it was the highest turnover race as far as Hong, Jong, Hong Kong jockey customers were concerned on that card. So uh, it is about the best races, absolutely, but it's also about the best betting races and, and full fields uh, and competitive betting outcomes seems to be the, 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 a really strong driver uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, Sam, thanks very much for your, for your time this morning. Um, look forward to talking to you very soon. Pleasure. Thank you. I'm joined now back in the Luck on Sunday studio by a man who is, without doubt, one of the highest profile trainers in the land and perhaps one of the most high profile in the world. But owing to the fact that he is sharing the trainer's license with his um, illustrious father, John, you probably don't know all that much about him. What I can tell you is he's already been decorated at the highest level 17 times in the space of two years since his name was added to the license. And prior to that, he'd had extensive experience globally with uh, trainers of the profile of David Hayes and, and Bob Baffert and Joseph O'Brien before returning to Clarehaven to have his name added to an already incredibly successful operation. He is, of course, fresh from Lord North's success in Dubai last weekend. Thady Gosden. Thady, good morning. Morning, Nick. Two years gone by in a in a flash since you were officially added to the license. Um, do you have time to to reflect at all, or is it is it just all work? Um, well, you know, as a it's a very kind introduction. Um, but it's all true. What, well, yeah, yeah, technically, but you know, it's. Um, I have to say, I think the team at home might be quite cheesed off with me if they thought that I was <laughs> claiming credit for all of that. You know, obviously, that it's um, mostly up to them. But uh, yeah, you know, you obviously have to look back a little bit. Um, you know, what's the point in doing it if you don't try and enjoy it from time to time? So when you did get your name added to the license, or when, you, when your name was added to the license and it was in the middle of the pandemic, um, how had that been discussed in the, in the months, weeks, days leading up to it? Well, I guess it had always been a bit of a plan, really, at some stage. Um, and obviously the BHA brought in the licensing rules were similar to Australia. Um, you should have a joint license. And, uh, and I guess we thought it was a good idea. And... Um, John obviously had managed to find enough <laughs> for me to think that, you know, we good idea and hopefully um, good for the future. Just take me, take me right back, because you've got, you've got three siblings, none of whom are, are trainers or, or are working directly in the industry, and I'm not sure any particularly have aspirations in, in, that, in that direction. What was it about the sport that gripped you right I, from early on? 
Well, I, de I think probably the difference between um, myself and my older siblings, I think they all enjoy it. Um, they all like tumming racing, but they never really uh, involved in it. Was that uh, John was training in California when they grew up? So yes, you lived away from the track, and you, you know, it's like someone going to work um, in the morning, coming home in the afternoon. Whereas when I grew up, I was down at um, in Newmarket first at Stanley House, and then at Manton. So it was uh, you're always sort of right there, living with the horses, and I guess you, you sort of pick up the bug, and then off you go. So, so you were kind of your dad's shadow. Would you always be there with him when you were when you were a young boy? I think I probably spent a lot of time irritating him when I was younger. Yeah, and probably still do now. But um, <laughs> but no, it's uh, you know obviously horses are a, a general pleasure to be around, and they're pretty you know fun and exciting animals to have around the place and be involved with. So when you would come home in your in your school holidays or or come home from from university, would you would you be in the yard every day? That was your that was your overriding passion. Um, well, you know, obviously, when you're when you're a kid, there's a, uh, you know, there's lots of stuff you're getting up to. But definitely spent a huge amount of time there, and uh, especially in the holidays. You know, in the summer holidays, in the middle of the racing season, it's uh, you know, it's always a fun and sort of dynamic place to to be involved with and and watch. What do you remember of of your of your parents when when you were a, a young child? What do you remember of their their working lives? How did you see it through a through a boy's eyes? Um, well, you know, I guess uh, you see them working a lot, right? And obviously they're very passionate about it. Um, obviously John and Rachel do different things and did different things then as well. But uh, I guess you just see the sort of the, yeah, they say the passion they have in it and the, you know, the obviously effects it has on them and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you get a good feel for it. You, you said in, a, in an interview a few years ago that, that you just saw your father working, 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 working. You never really never really put it down. Is that still him to, to uh, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you have to be pretty relentless, right? I think uh, persistence is a key, and he's a, he's a very good example of that. And is that relentlessness something that, that you, you feel you can, you can inhabit as well? I guess one of the things where, where firstly, you, mean, you don't really have a lot of choice, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like that when you're, when you're doing it, you know? Um, it's... Uh, it's a sort of, it's a highly addictive game, really. Like you, you know, you get into it, and you enjoy it, and uh, it all just keeps on rolling on. And, and at no point you sort of sitting there thinking, oh god, this is such, you know, such hard work. You just, you know, you're enjoying it and you're loving most of it. And it must be a, an odd position to be in, in a sense, because as I said, you've, you've got all that success already under your belt, officially credited with as a, as a, as a joint licensee. But it seems to me that you're, you're always wanting to deflect the credit. Now nobody nobody likes a show off and nobody's gonna warm someone who's gonna blow their own trumpet too much. But you're you're being given, you know, half the responsibility here, so you've got to you've got to claim some credit. Well, yes, but also well I don't know. I think you also have to be, you know, obviously I'm um, <laughs> distinctly aware that it wasn't like John was sort of training a couple of winners a year before I turned up. You know, obviously it's um I just sort of been in a very fortunate position to sort of dovetail in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as you know, he's built up a, a team around him over a very long time um, who are absolutely brilliant. And, and it's, yeah, I think it would be uh, a bit carried away to think <laughs> I had a lot to do with, with some of the success they've had. So you went, to, you went to Bristol University? Yeah. You did a degree in art history? Yes, deeply how, relevant to horse racing. <laughs> how, how, is your, how is your art history knowledge now? Um, well, it's, uh, you know, you don't have much time for, for a lot of... A lot of extracurricular activities when you're when you're in racing, but uh, you know you, you get down to your last, last exhibition and uh, try and keep up with it. 
you know, it's good fun. I can't say it was the most intense degree on the planet, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was fascinating at points. And something that you still, you still quite enjoy? Yeah, very much so. You know, it's uh, obviously, you know, you have to, as, um, as sort of, as all-inclusive and also all-involved as racing is, um, you have to get out and do other things um, when you can. And I think a bit of, yeah, you know, it's always fun to come down to London and go out to, you know, to do an exhibition on and see that. Yeah, because you are, you are, you are from a, a family of, um, you know, a great breadth of interest. You know, speak to your, your father on, on this show, he'll, he'll spend as much time talking to you about art and music and politics as he does about horse racing. How important do you think that is in, in sustaining a career in, in this industry, having that range of interest to give you that little bit of perspective? Well, I think it's obviously important to have perspective um, in any industry. I think it's the same in any water of life, right? You have to, whatever you're passionate about, whatever you enjoy, you have to always kind of try and pursue that. And, uh, you know, it's obviously, it's gratifying and, and, you're, and you're a very fortunate position where you're, you, can do, you can work and find that gratifying and also the other things. So how now are you dividing the responsibilities? How does day-to-day -day life work at, at Clarehaven? Well, you know, all the good ideas are his and the bad ideas are mine. <laughs> it's, um, it's, uh, it's the same as ever, really. You know, there's obviously we've got um, three brilliant assistant trainers. Um, obviously, you know, the same guys have been there for a long time. And uh, we all just work together as a team. Have you ever been to the office there? I have been to the office. You have been to the office. If you see, if you walk into the I'm office, not sure, the I'm not sure I've ever been shown the, shown the, you know, the inner workings, but I've seen Peter Schumacher see, at work. Peter Schumacher, yes. Um, but it's, uh, you know, you go in there and we're all in, the, we're all in quite a small office together. And that's sort of, I guess that's sort of the feel for the whole place, really. It's all a, it's all a team effort. You all discuss everything with each other and, um, and try not to miss anything, really. And what do you think that you've brought, particularly in, in the last year or so as you've begun to find your feet, what do you think you can add and bring to an already really successful organisation? Well, I don't know, we'll have to see really, I guess. <laughs> it's, um, I don't know, I think, you know, you try and come up with, with ideas and try and see if you move things in slightly different directions or possibly new directions and, you know, I guess try and innovate, but everyone is at the same time, you know, it's not, um, I'm going to sort of put my hand up and say that I'm responsible for for anything in particular, but you know, we all work together and, and yeah, try and find new ways to do things. You you spent quite a bit of time touring the world before you before you were added to the license. Um, you you spent a little time in in Australia and just reading what you said after that, it seems that left quite a a significant impression on you. You were working quite hard out there as well, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely not envious of the early mornings there. You know, you're waking up at sort of two thirty in the morning. Those are tractor in the city and only fractionally later if you're out in the countryside. Um, but no, I was actually to be down there um, with David Hayes when he was down there um, before we went back to Hong Kong. And you know, it's, um, it's one of those things where obviously you go to, say, you go to Australia, America, any other racing jurisdiction, and you can't, you know, the training style is very different. But I think there's, there's, you know, there's plenty of similarities in it, and there's little things that um, you can kind of pick up and see if they work, see if they don't work. Um, you know, it's all about sort of trial and error, really. So, would you have adopted? some of that and, and tried to bring it back here much as much as John did bringing maybe techniques from from California in the in the yeah, 90s. You know, I, th I think you you try and find like I said, specific things that, that you think could work obviously you know you watch if you watch people who, who move from Europe and they train in Australia and they you talk to guys down there and they try and train them in a, in a European way mm -hmm. it doesn't really work you know you have to you have to train them according to the to the techniques used in the country really otherwise you generate a disadvantage um, it seems, uh, but yeah, you know, there's. 
I guess sort of the big thing that's happened in, in Europe um, over the last few years that they started off with in Australia um, and in kind of East Asia would be treadmills, really. And they're now huge here, you know, um, a lot of people have them. And that's, a, that's something I guess was sort of properly developed down there. And I read a, an article where you were talking about how you'd, you'd seen them, you know, training, train, altitude training. In, in Australia, and, and whether that was something that you know could be, could yeah, be, could be developed. Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I also saw it um, in Japan as well. Anyway, you have uh, you have the treadmills in altitude chamber or treadmill in an altitude chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it's one of the things where you know, say if you're a, if you're an athlete and you go up to the mountains, you train there, you're living in the in the lower, in the high altitude, sorry, um, low altitude environment the whole time, rather than just running it and stepping back out into kind of a regular environment. Um, so I kind of I. It's interesting. I don't, you know, you wonder how effective it is if you're just in there for say, ten minutes while it's running, and then step back out into a normal, normal environment. But clearly, the the technology of training is something that that interests you. Well, yeah, obviously, you know, it's um, it's uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a few issues in our industry, and if we can find things that will help solve them, then then good. And well, you mentioned there are a few inter- issues in our industry. I mean, you you come from a a family of um, not just great practitioners, but also influential racing politicians both John and Rachel have been been on the show a couple of times um, is that an area of the uh, of the of the sport that you are engaged in are you someone who as time progresses wants to be very active in trying to trying to make a difference in that regard well I just think you have to be I'm not not, not actively involved at the moment um, I'm sort of peripherally um, engaging with it and obviously you know you you pick things up here and there, and, and listen to a lot of different opinions on different matters. Um, but you know, I think if you're if you're in a sport or an industry like ours, you have to. You can't just sort of stand by and watch it, watch it. You know, watch it pass by. You got to try and make a little bit of difference, right? And obviously, you see the kind of ownership base that you guys have at Clarehaven at the moment, and it, it is incredibly robust. But but time moves on, people move on. We're in an aging population. To what extent is it is it part of your remit now to try and Scour not just the UK but but the world, and we've just been hearing from Hong Kong for 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 new investment. I guess you, know, you always have to look for new investment. Um, we're very fortunate um, in Europe, you know, in the UK and in Ireland and France, that uh, is a place where investment, I guess, is over the last you know few decades we've seen it come here. Obviously, the prestige of racing here is very high. Um, the bloodstock is very is a very high quality, possibly the highest quality in the world um, for certain horses, and uh, and that obviously attracts investment. But you know, at the same time. You'd be uh, idle if you weren't going out looking for a bit here and there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the horses that you've you've been actively involved with so far, which which story, which journey, which animal have you felt the most affinity with? Um, it's quite a tough question, Nick. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's um. Well, there's quite a there's quite a lot of good ones to choose from. Hmm. I mean, Fortunately. you you started off. On the license at around the same time as Mishriff was doing his thing. Yeah, you know he was um, he was obviously a very special horse. He, uh, you know, and, you, and, and horses who have the character that he did, um, you know, they're always they're always good fun to to be around. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously you know, it's hard to pick one. But you know, like I say, he, he was he was a horse, and you know, going travelling, kind of around uh, around the world with him was was uh, you know you learn a lot. Um, hopefully, they learn a bit too, and it's uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting.